Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, you've already read our hearts. You know how easy it is to proclaim that we are Christians. And yet you know in our hearts all of us are struggling because sin is prevalent everywhere we go. The devil knows our weaknesses. He studied those, th- those weaknesses and he puts temptations right before us in a way that makes us dishonored. doesn't make us. But we yield to his temptations and we dishonor you. And for that, we ask for your forgiveness. But Lord, tonight we want to claim in Jesus' name what he promised. He said we could ask anything. And if it was according to his will, and we asked in his name, you would give it to us. So Father, we are asking for the Holy Spirit because we know that we're in trouble. We don't even know what to pray for unless the Holy Spirit guides us. And when we open up your word to try to to understand the guidance that you've given us in your word, we don't understand it. And without him to give us the interpretation for our own lives in a practical way, it will just be theory. So tonight, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us in a way that will cause us to take a step closer to you Open up our awareness so that we can sense your presence, so that we can hear your voice. This we ask in Jesus' name, knowing that you are answering it, and we thank you for it. Amen. I want to start by telling you a story. And like many stories start off, I want to start off this story like this. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, there was no death. There was no sickness. There was no sorrow and there was no pain. No one grew old. or feeble. There was no fighting. There was no arguing. There were no enemies. And no one feared anything. Life was full of joy and happiness. Everyone worshipped God, and it was their greatest delight to obey every command that he gave. There was perfect harmony in the universe, which is a term used to describe the total existence of where life is. What was it that caused this great sense of peace and harmony? Well, God created an environment of freedom. But this freedom could only exist in the realm of God's authority. Because you see, it was built on the foundation of God's law. Love, which is the law of the universe, was written on the hearts of every creature. Because love doesn't force, God also gave the power of choice. His creatures could exercise this free will 
to choose to embrace God's authority or not. As love poured out of God to his creatures, the natural response was allegiance to him. And they did this by rendering the highest form of love that was possible to give. Also known as reverence and sometimes referred to in the Bible as the fear of the Lord. Motivated by this love for their Creator, it was their desire to obey every command He gave. Recognizing and embracing the authority and willingly submitting to it. See, God was the supreme ruler of the universe. And he was the recipient of their worship. The great creator's authority was never questioned. See, this is what it was like in heaven before sin. But something happened that changed everything. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that that's not just one of those fairy tales, those once upon a time stories? The way that we know that is that God wrote it down. He told prophets and they wrote it down and God allowed them to compile it into what we know is the Bible. It's interesting that the Bible was never written to prove God's existence. The Bible was written from the standpoint that God is the creator and the authority of the universe. And it was written to tell us the facts, the truth about where we came from, about why we're here, and about where we're going. So everything that we know as Christians about the Bible has its reference in God's Word. Everything that we believe as Christians has again its reference in God's Word. The Bible tells us that God created everything. Angels were a part of God's creative plan and He ordained that they would help to coordinate and govern the universe. The Bible identifies two kinds of angels. It doesn't tell us much about it, but at least it tells us that there are cherubim and seraphim. But it does tell us about one angel in particular. It was an angel that was called Lucifer, who was a cherub. He had the special privilege and assignment of being the closest being to God Himself. God allowed Him to come in to His glory, the inner circle of His glory. It was Lucifer's title to be the covering cherub. 
Oftentimes, God would relay his purposes to the universe through Lucifer. Lucifer made his way around the universe, and as he did, he carried with him a love for God, directing all creatures to give their honor and worship to God. Somehow, in the course of his work, he started to think of himself as higher level than the other creatures. He had reverence for God, a fear of God, and somehow his, his thought of who he was started to grow, and as it did, the distance between his reverence for God and his thought of who he was and, and how important he was started to shrink. Until his thought of who he was was equal with God. As he went around doing God's work, he received the respect appropriately from the other angels and creatures, honoring God who gave him that authority. But it was in his mind the thought, I wonder what it would be like to be God and get reverence. After all, I should get more than just respect. And unconsciously at first, but gradually and ever so slowly, his reverence for God started to diminish. Until he looked at God as an equal. And he started then to discredit God. As he went around the universe, instead of trying to gain glory to, God, to give to God, he started to take glory. And he came to the point where he felt like he was ready to take God on. Now, when he lost his respect and reverence and fear of the Lord, he no longer honored God's authority. And therefore, he no longer honored God's law. He found fault with it. And he started to then expose those questions that he had in his own mind to others. Now, in an environment where there was no falsehood, you can understand how easily someone could have wondered. Lucifer started to misrepresent the character of God. God is a God of justice and terrible majesty. When God gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, God showed His majesty. The heavens shook. The mountain quaked. Thunder rolled. And sinful man fell in the dust. In the presence of no sin, God still has terrible majesty. And because God's 
character was maligned and doubts were raised in their mind. Some started to believe what Lucifer was saying. Thus he drew a portion of the angels in his rebellion against God and his authority. Lucifer set himself up as the leader of opposition to God. Thus his name was changed from Lucifer, the light bearer, to Satan, the adversary, and thus began the great controversy between Christ and Satan. Satan was the first to engage in sin, introducing it to the universe. And thus, all of us have encountered an experience with something God never intended us to have. Isaiah 59.2 tells us that it was our iniquities, our sins, that have separated us from God. I don't want to be separated from God by sin, do you? Well, there is something that we must understand about sin. And if we don't understand this aspect of sin, we'll never be able to get rid of it. Because it's possible for us to embrace something that we've had so close to us for all of our life and not recognize it for what it is. And so tonight, we're asking the Lord to show us the root of sin. So I want you to open up in your Bibles to Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. And if you have your Bibles, please follow along. There is an added blessing, I believe, when you have God's Word right in your hands. For those who don't have it, it's up on the screen. But it starts off like this. For to be carnally minded is death. Now stop right there and you have to ask yourself, what does it mean to be carnally minded? Well, if you go to chapter 6 and 23, in verse 23 in Romans, it says, for the wages of sin is death. Sin leads to death. Here it is, the carnally minded mind leads to death. So you can substitute carnally for sinful. So we could say for the sinful minded, for the sinfully minded is death. But then it goes on. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What does it mean to be spiritually minded? Well, later on in the chapter, the Bible Uh, Paul tells us that those who are led by the Spirit are called the sons of God. So to be spiritually minded just simply means that you are led, your mind is led by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. So now this text reads, For to be sinfully minded is death, but to be led by the Spirit is life and peace. Now I can understand life because sin leads to death. And if I don't have sin, then that leads to life. 
But why does the Bible say that it leads to life and peace? What is it about peace that I need? Well, the next verse tells us why. In verse 7 it says, Because the carnal or sinful mind is enmity against God. What is enmity? Enmity is hostility. It's conflict. It's war. It is saying that the sinful mind is at war with God. Now you know why we need to be at peace with God. Because we are at war with Him. But why are we at war with God? It's because this text tells us for the carnal mind or the sinful mind is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. He, Paul is telling us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that a sinfully minded person is at war with God. And he was mind will never be in tune with God because it cannot be connected with the law of God because it will never subject itself to the law of God. And it says it can't happen. It never can happen. So we can try as hard as we want, but we can never be free from sin. Well, doesn't the Bible give us another definition of what sin is? In 1 John 3, verse 4, the Bible says, sin is lawlessness. But in the King James, it says sin is the transgression of the law. So there's a connection between sin and the law. The Bible says that that's true, so that has to be true. Sin is definitely breaking the law of God. But if I used this as my sole picture of what all of sin is, I would have an incomplete view of the sin problem. This is why you don't take one text and you just make a whole belief out of one text. You read the entire Bible and find different texts that, that don't contradict, but it gives you a clear, more complete view of what the topic is that you're studying. You see, if I only thought that breaking the law of God was what constitutes sin, that I might get a feeling in my own mind or that, that is all I would have to do is to stop breaking the law. Or at least to be compliant to the law of God. And if I didn't break the law of God, then I would be sin-free. I might get the idea that because the law says in, in the Sixth Commandment says, Thou shalt not murder. I might get the idea that if I didn't murder anybody, that I actually kept the Sixth Commandment. And the, the Ninth Commandment is, Thou shalt not bear false witness. And I might get the idea that if I just stay shut up in my own house, and I don't talk to anybody, that I will have been one who did not bear false witness, and therefore I would, or I would have not taken... Uh, or I wouldn't even have taken the name of the Lord in vain, so I wouldn't have broken those two commandments. The second one and the ninth one. I would have a distorted view of what the picture of sin really is. But you see, the Bible gives us a broader picture of the sin problem. The Bible tells us in, in James 4.17 that to him to know, that knows to do good 
and does it not, to him it is sin. Now that's not doing something or not doing something that I shouldn't. That's saying that when it's in your power and you have the time and the resources to do something good and you know it with somebody else and you withhold that, God says that's sin. In Romans 14.23, the Bible tells us that whatever is not of faith is sin, which is to say that whatever weakens faith is sinful. Jesus himself said in John 16.9 that he said, of sin because they do not believe in me. In other words, failure to believe in Jesus as the Son of God is sin. The Bible also tells us another aspect of sin that's very, very important. You see, the Bible tells us that sin involves a choice and some understanding of God's law. Because in Romans 5.13, Paul says, sin is not imputed or counted against when there is no law. So Paul is saying that if you didn't know that was wrong and you did it, God says, he doesn't hold that a, us accountable. How do I know that? I know that because that's what God said in Acts 17.30. He says, in times of ignorance, when I didn't know, in times of ignorance, God overlooks it. But now he calls all men to repentance. And I can't repent of something that I didn't know. So God is saying, I'm going to be telling you so that you know. But when you didn't know, I didn't hold it against you. God himself tells us in Ezekiel 18.20 something very interesting. He says, all of the souls are mine. And he says, the soul that sins will die. And then if you drop down to verse 20, he repeats that again. God himself is speaking. The soul who sins shall die. And then he expounds upon this soul that sins. The son, it's, he says, shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father the guilt of the son. Each one is held accountable individually for their own actions. I'm not held accountable for my dad's actions. My dad is not held accountable for my actions. I'm held accountable for what I have chosen to do. And then if you drop down to verse 26 in that same chapter, God again is talking and he says, it is because of the iniquity he has done, that's talking about the sinner, that he dies. It is specific to us. But what is it about sin that causes this conflict with God and results in law-breaking? You see, sin is absolute in its character because it is, are you ready? Sin is rebellion against God and his authority. Sin knows no neutrality. Jesus himself said, if you're not for me, you're against me. There's no middle ground here. If there is rebellion in your heart, then you're not completely sold out to the Lord. Now let's go back up and read this verse again in Romans 6 and 7. For to be sinfully minded is death, 
But to be led by the Spirit is life and peace. Because the sinful mind is rebellion against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. You see how Satan understands this one concept by the way he focused his temptations on Jesus. You see, rebellion is hopeless. It's a hopeless situation which can never be reconciled to God because it will never submit to God's authority. God knew humanity was helpless and hopeless. In his great love for us, he revealed a plan to remove the rebellion in us. John 3.16 depicts exactly what God had in mind. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. All throughout Jesus' life, Satan was trying to get him to fall in one point. If he could succeed in that, all would be won. You see, Jesus inherited a broken relationship from Mary. But he inherited an unbroken relationship from his heavenly Father. Satan's temptations were intensified and magnified all in an effort to get Jesus to rebel against God's authority and break his connection with his heavenly Father. By getting him to deviate from God's plan and to take a shortcut, his subjection to the authority of God would be broken. Now I want to read you portions of three quotes from the Spirit of Prophecy in Manuscript Releases, Volume 16, page 180. This is what it says. The whole effort was to draw Christ away from his allegiance to God. It's talking about this temptations of Satan on Jesus. The whole effort was to draw Christ away from his allegiance to God, to undermine in a deceptive way his principles and his allegiance to the Lord God. A little later she writes this. God's perfect humanity is the same that man may have through connection with Christ. And then a little later she adds this. Christ took our nature, fallen but, un, but not corrupted, and would not be corrupted unless he received the words of Satan in the place of the words of God. You see, Jesus was tempted to break that connection with God in such ways that we would we have already yielded to. But he didn't. Jesus said in John 5.30, Of mine own self, I do nothing. Jesus wanted to make sure that his allegiance to the authority of God was real and practical and active. Then he said in John 10.25, The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. 
Again, in John 14, 2, he says, The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. All throughout Jesus' life, he was subjective to the authority of his Father. Just hours before he would hang on the cross, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane pleading with God to find, is there some other way that I don't have to go through this separation with you? In Luke twenty-two forty-two, the Bible records that Jesus said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If we, brothers and sisters, are going to be followers of Christ, this has to be our prayer and aim and goal and motto and practice. We must follow the will of the Father, even if it takes us to the cross. See, there's another example in Scripture that God gives. This was an example of how Jesus targeted how Jesus was targeted by Satan. But you and I are targeted. And we can say, well, yes, Jesus did that, but we can't do it. But Jesus tells us, no. If you put your faith and trust in me and you embrace in me, I will give you the power to do what I did so that you can do the same thing that I did. How do I know that? I know that because the Bible records a story that some people find very very strange and hard to understand. But if you understand it in the concept that we're talking in the, in, the, in the perspective that we're talking about, it will make more sense. Go to the book of Job, Job 1, and Jesus, or God, introduces us to, to a human being. It says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who, what's that word? feared God and shunned evil. Here is one that God is saying, this man is blameless, perfect. He fears me, God said. He introduces him. Job has lived and lives in a, a, an environment where there is rebellion all around him. But Job has made a decision in his life, the same decision that you and I must make if we're going to be connected to the Father. He made a decision to surrender his will to the Father, to, to God. And he lived that out, and God gave him, just like he gave Jesus victory over victory, gave him victory over the devil's temptations, and blessed him mightily, both spiritually, physically, and financially. Now in this book, and this is the only book that I know of in the Bible where it does it, down in verse 6, God pulls the window or the, or the curtains back of the window so that you can see what life outside of this world is like. Just a picture. Just a glimpse. Because in verse 6 it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? In other words, why are you here? What, what constitutes you coming? So Satan answered and said to the Lord, 
from going to and from on the earth and from walking back and forth upon it, what he is implying is there isn't anybody on this on the earth that follows you. They're in rebellion to you because they serve me. I am the one they serve. And that's why I am representing the earth here. Now, the Lord says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? God is saying, No, Satan. There is a man who worships me. There is a man who has submitted to my authority. There is a man. I still have part of my kingdom on earth. It's housed right in the heart of this man, Job. But Satan looks at God and he says, the only reason that Job serves you is it's a pretense. He doesn't serve you because he wants to. He doesn't serve you because he loves you. He serves you because of what you give him. You've bought him off. Now I'm going to tell you, if you let me take everything away that he has, he will curse you to your face. Now I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, when Jesus said the kingdom of God is in your heart, he was saying that those who have embraced the authority of God have embraced God's authority. They have become part of His kingdom. They live in a state of, of where everyone is in rebellion, but they are not. They are a staked claim that they belong to God. Satan knows your weakness. And just like he did to Job, he can make sure that you are miserable. He can insinuate doubts in your mind so that you question God's character of goodness and what he has plans for you. You have a death of a loved one that you love very much and you think, where is God? Surely a God who loves wouldn't do that. You lose your job and your income and you say, what am I going to do now? How am I going to support myself? You run under one difficulty after another. And Satan is right there to put those temptations of doubt. Just like he did with Job. Satan tried to get Job to come to the place where he would look at God and say, I don't understand this, so I'm going to throw my hands up and say, I'm done with you. I'm going to curse you and die. But Job didn't do it. God sustained him. And Job's faith was weak, but Jesus' faith that he gave him was strong. And in the course of misunderstanding, yes, he had doubts. No, he didn't see, understand why God did what he did or allowed what he do, to, Satan to do what he did. But in the course of that under, misunderstanding, in Job 13, 15, it's recorded what Job said. 
He came to the conclusion, I don't understand any of this stuff. But even if God was to kill me, I'm going to put my faith and trust in Him. And I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, your day's coming. If you haven't been harassed by the devil, he's coming. And if you don't have a hold on God and know God like Job was able to know God, you're going to be tempted to throw God out and to curse him and die. But God is stronger. And he's telling you tonight, you can be victorious. You see, when we accept Christ as our Savior, the very first thing, not the second, not the third, the very first thing we must do is choose to submit to the authority of God. If we do not accept the absolute authority of God, we remain in rebellion and therefore in a state of sin. And we remain in a place where God cannot save us. Now, the Bible gives us examples so that we can understand how it works in a practical sense. So God gave a story in the Bible. It's found in Matthew 19, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn to that. But the Bible shares a story about a man, a man who, by the estimation of everyone else, was a real, religious, godly man who surely would be connected to God. We don't know his name, but he's referred to as the rich, young ruler. Now, he exceeded the criteria of what everyone else thought a real good Christian ought to be. A godly person. But somehow, he felt like he was missing something. He couldn't put his finger on it. But there was something he was missing, lacking. He had been preparing externally. He was trying to correct all of his behavior so that it matched what God wanted him to do. But somehow, he couldn't figure out what, but somehow, something was missing. And so he did what every other person must do when they sense a spiritual need. He went to Jesus, and he asked him. And as he approached him, he said, Good teacher. What good thing shall I do to have eternal life? Now, he already recognized Jesus was superior because he bowed the knee, the Bible says, and said this. And he says, good teacher. Now, Jesus asks him a question. And so he comes back and he says, why, why did you call me good? There's no one good but one, and that's God. Jesus is essentially saying, do you recognize that I'm God? True goodness is a divine characteristic. Are you recognizing 
that I am God? Jesus continued. And he said, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. The rich young ruler thought for a minute about the commandments. Well, I know one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And he said to him, well, which ones? Am I missing one? Was there a commandment I haven't been keeping? And then Jesus came back and referred to the very commandments that he thought he was keeping. He didn't start with the first four. He started with the last six. Now the rich young ruler had been doing his best to keep the commandments. Now I want to pause and ask you this. How many of us have been doing our best to keep God's commandments and realize that we are struggling? We haven't kept them. Well, this man sensed it. And realizing, he said, what do I lack? Now the Bible says, and I like what it says in Mark 10, 21, which is telling the same story. And I'm going to come back to Matthew 16. But in, in Mark 10, 21, the Bible says, Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack. Now if you go back to Matthew 16, 21, Jesus says the same thing, only He says, He says to him, if you want to be perfect. So essentially what Jesus is saying, there's one thing you lack from being perfect. Now wouldn't you just be delighted if Jesus Himself was to look at you and say, there's only one thing that you lack from being perfect. Wouldn't you just really appreciate that? Just, and wouldn't you really want to know what that one thing was? Just one thing? I look in the mirror and, and I, just on what I know, I can fill a page. And, if, and Jesus looks at this rich young ruler and he says, just one thing you lack. Do you know, brothers and sisters, I believe that Jesus is talking to us tonight and he's saying the same thing he said to this rich young ruler. There's just one thing, just one thing that you lack. What is that one thing? Well, Jesus continues to go on, and He says, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow Me. Whoa, that's it? I just have to sell everything I have? Give it to the poor, and I am going to be perfect? Hallelujah! Now, a shallow reading of God's Word would come to that conclusion. But we don't want a shallow understanding. We want to dig deeper and say, what is the one thing that God is referring to here? Is it the sell? To sell all of our, our worldly goods and give that away? Is that what it is? Well, Jesus met another wealthy man. It's recorded in 
Luke 19.8. His name was Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus was different than the rich young ruler who was a godly man by all accounts. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And by everyone's account, he was a sinner. Zacchaeus had heard of Jesus and his teachings. And he desperately wanted to see him. And when he heard that he was coming to his town, he wanted to be out there to see. But there was such a big crowd, and he was so small in stature, he couldn't see over the crowd. And so he thought ahead, and he said, Now wait a minute, this crowd is moving right over to a certain way. I'm going to run ahead, and I know there's a certain sycamore tree. I'm going to climb up that little tree, and I'm going to watch Jesus as he comes, and I'm going to get a good look at him. So he ran ahead, climbed up the tree, and waited for the crowd and Jesus to come. And the crowd made its way. Jesus came. He saw Jesus. And he noticed the purity and the goodness of Jesus. And his desire of his heart was to get to know Jesus better. And Jesus stopped right under where he was, looked right up at him and said, Zacchaeus, you come down because I'm going to go to your house today. Well, Zacchaeus slid out of that tree as fast as he could and made his way to his house. And as soon as Zacchaeus could, he looked at Jesus and he said, half of everything I've got, I'm giving to the poor. And if I have defrauded any one person, I'm going to give him four times that much. And Jesus looks at him and he says, this day salvation has come to your house. Now, Jesus never said one word about material goods. What was the one thing that Zacchaeus did? Well, Jesus met another wealthy man. This wealthy man was so wealthy, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that this man could sustain all of Jerusalem for ten years on his own wealth. His name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus didn't want to just go to Jesus in public because after all, he had a reputation. And so he sought Jesus out for a private interview. And when it was just Jesus and him, Jesus never said one word about money. Not one. What Jesus did tell him was about the Holy Spirit and the need for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction on the heart of sin so that he could be born again. You see, Nicodemus and Zacchaeus had done the one thing. But the rich young ruler, he wanted to be a disciple of Jesus. But when given the opportunity, he failed the test of discipleship. Zacchaeus, the sinner. Nicodemus, the self-righteous Pharisee recognized the one thing and passed the test of discipleship. 
what is the test of discipleship? It is a test that you and I are going to have to take. And if we don't pass the test, we're not going to be Christ's disciples. What is this test of fellowship? The test of fellowship is a full, complete, unrestricted surrender to the will of God. Jesus lays out this test of fellowship in Matthew 16.24 when He says, He says, if anybody wants to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and then do what? Now I want you to notice that these three things cannot be separated if they're going to be, if you're going to pass the test. So I could refer to them as one in three parts. The very first one is that you must deny yourself. What does it mean to deny yourself? It means to submit to the will of Christ. It means to renounce self and give up your plans and desires. It means that you recognize that you were created, first of all, so you belong to the Creator. But since you rebelled, it means that, means that you recognize that Jesus came and He redeemed you from sin. And now you are His again. And since He has redeemed you, you are not your own. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God, which means you are underneath His authority. You are not free to do anything you want to do. But I want to tell you a secret. God changes what you want to do. So that what you want to do is what God asks you to do. And so it's the desire of your heart to do what God wants you to do, which now is what you want to do. Now, the, the second part is to take up your cross. What does it mean to take up your cross? This is a phrase that symbolizes the process of giving yourself unreservedly to God and accepting the responsibilities that, that come with discipleship. This cross could be anything that separates you or inhibits you from giving your full will to God. It could be appetite. It could be. I struggle with appetite. Every meal is a battleground. It could be anger. It could be selfishness. And I'm going to guarantee every one of us has that problem. You could put whatever vice it is, but that's got to go. For the rich young ruler, it was material goods. God says, you've got to get rid of that. And he said, no, no, I can't do that. He hung on to it. Because he could not, he would not surrender that to the Lord. So whatever it is that crosses the natural, carnal desires could be your cross. And then the last part, follow me. What does it mean to follow Christ? Following Him results in following in His footsteps, the footsteps of Jesus. 
It means to pattern our lives after His life. To serve God and our fellow men as He served God and His fellow men. This process, the Bible talks about this process in many ways of taking up your cross and following Him. In 1 Corinthians 15.31, it's described as dying daily to self. In 2 Timothy 4.7, it's described as fighting the fight of faith. In Ephesians 6.6, it's described as doing the will of God from the heart. In Galatians 2.20, it's described as being crucified with Christ. You see, it's the will of God that man should reflect his character. And his character is summed up in one word. What is that word? Love. The Ten Commandments describe how we are to express our love to God and to our fellow man. Jesus explained how those Ten Commandments were to be played out in a practical way on the Sermon on the Mount. He he emphasized that commandment keeping is reflecting God's character. Paul puts it this way in Romans 13.10. He says, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And then he describes commandment keeping from a different perspective. You see, he describes how one actually reflects God's law in 1 Corinthians 13. It's known as the love chapter where love hardly notices when someone else does it wrong. It never looks for the worst, but always looks for the best. The description of that is the same. It's a description of God's character. And the Ten Commandments with the do's and the don'ts is a description of God's character. Same same character. So, So Exodus 20 and 1 Corinthians 13 are describing... The same thing. Now what makes it possible for us to keep God's commandments? If God says we can do it, we must be able to do it. So how? How are we going to do this? It's the same power that enabled God's creatures to keep the law of the universe before sin. You see, sin is only possible with an attitude of rebellion. The attitude of rebellion must be replaced with the attitude of submission. The attitude of submission begins with the fear of the Lord, that reverence, that that ultimate form of love for God. And when we express that love for God in the form of reverence and the fear of the Lord, He provides us the power to overcome sin. And then He allows us Real freedom. See, the fear of the Lord is described in many ways in Scripture. In Proverbs 9.10, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs 1.7, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In Proverbs 15.33, the Bible says that the, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And before honor is humility. And the ultimate 
Humbling is when we humble ourselves before God and embrace His authority, submitting ourselves under it. In Proverbs 22.4, the Bible says, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. And in this one text, you see where when we submit to the will of God, God gives us love in our hearts, and it's that loving submission to God that enables us to connect to the power source. And then the Bible gives us this clear explanation of how to overcome sin. Proverbs 16.6 By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. In Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So let me ask you this. Is it possible to be perfect on this earth? Well, let me ask you a question. Didn't we just read what Jesus said? If you do the one thing, God says you will be perfect. But understand where that perfection comes from. It doesn't come from you. Because in order to do the one thing, you surrender and submit your will to God. And then God comes in and works in you to will and do of His good pleasure. So who's doing the willing and the working? What are we doing? Submitting. So as you go throughout the day, you're going to find out that your one work assignment throughout the whole day, just one, surrender to the will of God. And that means when you're out and about and you have a conversation with someone and it turns into a negative conversation and you're in the middle of that, you can recognize that if you're engaging in an argument, that you are not under the power and influence of the Lord. There is a spirit of rebellion of, don't tell me that I'm not right, coming out of you. And at that moment, if you surrender and submit to the will of God, God will give you the victory that moment for that sin. And you could, you could put that with any sin that you find yourself engaged in because God will start to identify the sin in your life so that you can surrender and submit to Him. So let me ask you a couple questions in closing. What is sin? Sin is rebellion against God's authority and His law. It provides the attitude behind every act of sin. Next question. What is the one thing that God requires of you in order for you to be perfect? Fully surrender to the authority of God. Number three. How do we accomplish completing the one thing? Deny ourselves. Take up our cross. And follow Him. I want you to know it's easy, too easy, to identify the problem. And even to understand the remedy for the problem. It is easy to do that in words. 
but oh so hard to do it in practice. But God's promises are for us. And God promises in Matthew 19, 26, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 1 John 4, 4, He who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. You see, the sad story is that the rich young ruler walked away. The condition for discipleship was too hard for him. He didn't realize it, but he was in a state of rebellion against the authority of God, and he would not do the one thing. Christ was calling him to do. To choose to submit himself unreservedly to God. Tonight God is calling you personally. Don't look at your neighbor. He's calling me. He's calling you to do the one thing. And God is saying to you tonight, I've told you what the one thing is. You have no excuse. Now you have a choice. Will you do the one thing and fully surrender to me by choice? Or will you be like the rich young ruler and say, That's hard. Or will you be like Nicodemus, the rich man, who was even richer than the rich young ruler, who didn't count his riches anything to be of value because he valued the one thing more than anything else, a relationship with his Father in heaven. Do you know that Nicodemus died a very poor man? He died a poor man, but do you know what he did with all his wealth? He funded the early church so that the gospel could go throughout all of the world. He was not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance like his Father in heaven. Do you know what, if you're, a, if you're a person who does the one thing, God's going to give you the opportunity He's going to give you the opportunity to help with your resources, to take the gospel to the world. Now, I'm not telling you that you need to sell everything you have. That's not for me to say. God didn't tell Nicodemus that, and he did it. God didn't tell Zacchaeus that, and he did it. Why? Because he shared the same love that God had. Do 
But when God tells you it's time to give this or give this, or I don't want you just to be generous. I, you need to sacrifice. God's not saying that because He needs your money. God's not saying that because the church needs your money. God's saying that is because you need to give your money and realize it's not yours. It's God's. When we have a love for God, there is nothing on this earth that we count as so valuable that would stand in the way from us and God. I want to ask you a question tonight. Are you willing to do the one thing? It's easy to say yes. So hard to do. But if you're wanting and willing and choosing tonight to do the one thing, God in His mercy will remind you throughout the day, tomorrow, And then He'll remind you throughout the day on Sunday. And then Monday. And He will continue to remind you until that becomes a habit in your own life of doing the one thing. Surrendering your will to God. Until you come to the place as Jesus came. Where the words that I speak are not my own. I don't speak on my own authority. I don't do my own thing. Now I only operate under the power of the Father who lives in me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, you have been here. We see it, sense it. We know that you are calling us to a higher commitment than we've ever made before. But Lord, we also know that our promises are like ropes of sand. We're quick to make them and we're quicker to break them. But Lord, you know how helpless we are and how hopeless we are. And that's why you gave us Jesus to connect us to you. To live out a life where he is our model. He's our example of what it means to, to overcome sin. And to stay connected to you in observing your authority. Jesus shed his blood for us. He took our sins and paid the penalty of death so that we could live with you forever and always. And then, Father, you gave us an equally wonderful gift the Holy Spirit. For when Jesus was resurrected and He went, as you've told us, He's in the right hand of you right now. And Jesus told us that when He went up to you, He was going to send back the Holy Spirit so that we could be connected to you through Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. So Father, I want to thank You for the Holy Spirit that connects us. For bringing Christ into our life. For, for allowing us to have a model to 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 gauge ourselves, He is our only hero. Jesus is. And Father, tonight you've given us the privilege of, 
of doing that one thing, surrendering ourselves to you. And through his power, not our own, but through his power, we have chosen. And we want to claim that promise that you said you would work in us to will and do. You'll give us a desire, and then you'll carry out that desire by action through us. So, Father, I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for your perfect life being played out in us. So, Father, now I want to ask you, because Jesus said we could ask anything in his name, and if it was in your will, you would give it to us. And I know this is your will. So I want to ask, Father, that you would unite our hearts with your heart. You would merge our will with your will. You would make our mind one with your mind. That you would bring our thoughts into captivity to your thoughts, all through the power of Jesus living out his life in us. That we might honor and glorify you. And Lord, I pray that you would pour more love in our hearts in the form of reverence that we might return to you in the fear of the Lord. So we ask this in the name of Jesus, and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.